morning. How's everyone doing today? I am, uh, I'm doing good, thank you. I am Pastor Mike. I'm grateful that you joined me on this unbelievably beautiful morning. Uh, so I want to start today with one of my favorite games growing up, which was Mad Libs. I loved this game as a kid. Have you all played Mad Libs before? Yeah. Huzzah for word games. <laughs> Mad Libs is a word game where you have a story where some of the words are left blank. And then one player asks the other players for words to fill in said blanks based on very specific categories. Nouns, verbs, adjectives, place, person, etc. All without the other players knowing the rest of the story, which they then read out loud once filled in and hilarity ensues because obviously the words that the players chose often don't fit the surrounding context at all. So we're going to do one together. Are you all ready? I just want to get this on your mind. Now, as a brief reminder, our gatherings are rated PG-13 at worst, and I would also prefer that we don't push up against that boundary at all. This is still church. Keep it classy, E3. So we're going to dive in. Now, I'm going to need everyone to participate. It's a pretty small crowd today. I'm going to need you to shout it because masks and whatnot, and I want to get this going. First, I need a man's name. Joe, Dan's got it already. Occupation. Teacher. Noun. Toilet. We'll go with two. We have two nouns. So box and toilet. Is that what we said? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a good start, y'all. <laughs> I need another noun. Dog. What was that one? Dog. Dog. Ooh. <laughs> that's not good. Uh, I need a shape. Square, Square. okay. A verb. I'm going to go with squat. <laughs> I need a woman's name. Sarah. Sarah. Ooh, that's a good one. Noun. Glasses. Glasses. Okay. A historical monument. Lincoln Memorial. We're going to go Lincoln Memorial, but you can get the next one. I need a restaurant name. What was that? <laughs> We're going to go with Applebee's because that was gibberish. <laughs> Give me a noun. Cloud. Cloud. Give me another noun. Potato. Potato. Give me another noun. Star. What was that back there? Horses. Horses. I'm going to go singular because I don't know how it works in the sentence. I need a verb. Run. Run. I need another noun. Candle. Candle. Ooh, that's a good one. I need an adjective. Who knows what adjectives are? What was that? Fluffy. Fluffy. <laughs> I need an emotion. Sad. I'm going to go sad. Ang I need a noun. Almost done. Give me a noun. Give me a noun. Chris Turner, what, what was that? Shelf. Chris Turner, give me a noun. Give me a noun. Okay. Coffee. And I need one more verb. Walk. That's not going to make any sense. You're about to find out. All right. So before I read this, you probably didn't know it as I was writing it, but y'all just wrote a script for a Michael Bay action film. Are y'all ready to read it? With feeling, Mike. With feeling. 
Joe is a normal teacher. Then one day a box explodes, causing a toilet to blow up, and a nearby dog erupts into a square of flames. <laughs> Joe realizes that he's being chased by the government who's trying to squat him. Thank you for that one. While on the run, he teams up with Sarah. The duo decide to turn the tables on their pursuers by blowing up a glasses, so it's a singular noun, which triggers a chain reaction, causing the local Applebee's and the Lincoln Monument to explode. Then the bad guy's helicopter gets struck by a piece of cloud from when the potato nearby exploded and the helicopter explodes and falls into a horse, <laughs> causing it to run, which shoots a fireball straight into the heart of the candle and destroys the bad guy leader. The two decide that such a fluffy ordeal has caused them to fall in sad. <laughs> With each other, they decide to celebrate on the shelf, and they even manage to use coffee from the beginning of the movie to walk the whole story together. Great job, y'all. Great job. <laughs> I would see that movie. I would see it. And I really appreciate that there's nothing that I have to edit out of the podcast. So good on you. I think that's because Chris Turner didn't participate. Um, <laughs> but I love, I love Mad Libs. I love the dynamic of the game. How it's both structured and open-ended at the same time. There's set parameters that we have to work within. The key parts of the larger story and then the kinds of words that you're going to have to use to make each sentence still work, kind of, right? But within the structure... You're free to create whatever narrative you want. Good, bad, ugly, funny, everything in between. And I love that because in so many ways, I believe this captures two key parts about how we as human beings experience reality. First, I think it captures the nature of living in reality. We live in a world where on one hand, some things are set. For example, gravity. You can believe all you want that gravity does not exist, and yet, when you jump off a building, the ground's going to come at you just as fast, right? And on the other hand, at the same time, we have an immense freedom to choose how we will interact with these set things, to creatively fill in the blanks around what's set and ultimately shape the story of our lives based on what we do with this. And the second thing I think it lights up is I think it captures how we try to understand reality. Mad Libs gets that as human beings, we are hardwired to be narrative-driven creatures. We love and need stories. We create them and use them to try to make sense of our world, of ourselves, of reality itself. I mean, just think about it. Think of what you do individually when you think about your life. Do you create a list of facts? Or do you think of your life in terms of an ongoing story? Ups, downs, peaks, valleys, heroes, villains, plot twists. We do this collectively. Every community, society, nation holds a story or multiple stories about what it means to be part of that society. When you think of being an American, do you think of geographical lines? Or do you think of a whole host of values underneath each a story that exemplifies them? We even do this 
when we first try to teach a child about, for example, sharing toys. Chris Turner, you have a child. Do you turn to FBI statistics on greed, poverty, and crime when you're trying to teach them about sharing is caring? Or do you tell them a story about why they should be generous? We use stories for so much. We rely on stories to shape identity in so many ways, to understand who we are, why we are that way, who we can and want to become, and how we can go about becoming it, to make sense of and direct our engagement with our reality. And I think this is a wonderful part of what it means to be a human being. But there's also a problem, and that is not all stories that we create and believe are true. We have the ability to believe and act on false stories about us and our world and how we should live within it all the time. And it's all about how we fill in those blanks around what's set in our society, in our reality, in our world. For example, we climb a tree, we slip, and due to gravity fall on our butts, experiencing pain. We've all done that before, right? Well, we learn one of those set truths when we do that. When we fall, gravity will take over. And that is a good story to know about how our reality works. However, we also are creatures that can create memories, which we then use to try to predict the future, to prevent future sufferings, or to increase our ability to get blessings out of our lives. So we often go one step forward when we do something like this. Often we will fill out the sentence based on that one experience and the negative outcome it produced. And then we make it permanently set in our minds. Whether that's true or not, whether it actually helps us capture or navigate reality or not, we believe that this is how it will always be. That's the story we create. I climbed a tree and blank, so I should blank. Well, I fell, I experienced pain, and then instead of, so I should be safer next time, what do we do? We fill it in permanently based on this one outcome. I climbed a tree, I fell, I felt pain, and thus I should never climb anything again. Do you see how we do that as human beings? It's no longer open-ended with endless potential outcomes. Rather, it's the set story you hold for any similar experience moving forward, which changes dramatically how you interact with reality from that experience. And this is true for serious stuff, true. It's not just about climbing trees. Through painful experiences within reality, we have a tendency to write internal narratives that inevitably at some point exist outside of reality. I fell in love, and that person hurt me badly. So we write this internal narrative that no one's trustworthy or that we are unworthy of love. We did everything right and still lost. So we tell ourselves we're useless or a failure and always will be. We lost a parent at a young age. So we write that internal story that anyone who gets close to us will inevitably abandon us someday. And these narratives, they shape us, y'all. How we fill in the blanks shapes the entire story we tell ourselves as we live in this world. There's a fascinating Harvard study that I've quoted before that I think captures this. 
It was trying to study what produces lasting mental, emotional, habitual, and behavioral change in human beings. And it discovered there are only two universal buckets that produce lasting change. One, intense suffering, something that shatters the story we tell ourselves about who we are and how our world works. The only positive one, the second one, was joining a community that taught the person a new story about reality. Moving into a church that taught them the story of Christ. Moving into a community that taught them a new way to frame who they are, who they want to become, and how they can go about becoming it. That was the only positive, universally true thing that produced dramatic, lasting change in the human mind. I think that's fascinating. It captures the power of narrative. And in a very goofy, simplistic way, Like Mad Libs, the biblical story upholds a very similar dynamic. It tells us that there are certain unavoidable frameworks of reality. Life, death, beauty, suffering, relationships, isolation, etc. But at the same time, it also teaches us that we as human beings have been given a great amount of freedom to decide how we live within those frameworks that our universe has this larger story with set structures, directions, and patterns. And yet, within that story, there are also blanks that we as humans are invited to fill in however we choose. In what words we choose determines who we think we are and how we live and experience God's good world. In a way, I think this highlights one of the central invitations of discipleship that Jesus offers us to play the spiritual game of Mad Libs, where through his story, we change the words that we once used to fill in the blanks of our lives and thus transform the story that we believe we are living in and writing within God's, God's larger one. This is the invitation that we're gonna explore in this new series, Fill in the Blank. You see, as we head into summer, I really wanna take some time to look at some of the most common and important internal stories that we create about ourselves, others, and God. Those stories whose blanks and how we fill them direct so much of our lives for good and ill. Stories grounded in sentences that we're gonna reflect on each week, looking at how maybe we have filled them in in the past, filled in those blanks poorly, and honestly, how we've created broken stories in doing so. But even more important than that, we're gonna look at how Jesus invites us to replace those words that we've chosen, that we've lived within, and transform entirely who we believe we are and can be. And y'all, I'm excited. Uh, Liz told me I should do a Mad Libs with Bible stories later in the series, so you guys can wait for that one. Noah's Ark is gonna be a hoot. But anyway, (laughs) I'm excited for this series because I think this is so important. And today I want to start with the most foundational story about spirituality that I hold. One summarized by an incredibly simple sentence. God calls me blank, adjective, thus I should blank, verb, him. Now, why is this sentence so important to me? Well, in the past, I filled in this sentence with only negative words because of the upbringing I had, the church that I grew up with before I left Christianity. Things like God calls me horrible, wicked, irredeemable, 
Thus I should fear, hate, or persuade him, which at times produced terror and self-loathing towards God and myself. At other times, this ardent perfectionism, trying to earn God's love, or at the very least, stay his hand from crushing me. And ultimately, at the end of my story, before I came back, it produced rejection. I want nothing to do with this God. But changing the words that I put in the blanks of that sentence, and thus the story that I lived in, was the most transformative shift in my spiritual life. And there are many passages I could use to talk about why. But the one that has always stuck with me is this fascinating passage from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And I say it's fascinating because it's unique. You see, the other Gospels begin with a bang. Gospel John begins with a theological treatise on why Jesus is God-made flesh, the creator of the universe. Matthew and Luke begin with Jesus' miraculous birth, massive claims about who Jesus is and evidence about why that's important, which makes sense if you're trying to convince people that this Jesus guy is a big deal, right? You want to talk about the fact that he had this virgin birth. You want to talk about the fact that he is the infinite God of our universe made flesh. Doesn't that make sense, right? Mark doesn't. Mark begins simply. Verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Now you might read that and at first be like, well, here it comes. The story of God's chosen king. But then Mark kind of meanders from there. First, he introduces this figure, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people in the wilderness. And then he builds to verse nine, where he introduces Jesus for the first time. And we're like, here comes the bang, the dramatic entrance, the king is here. We read in verse nine, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now you may not realize it, but this is a really odd way to introduce a king. See, we as people saturated with Jesus' story know who Jesus is, the miracle worker, the teacher, the prophet, the resurrected son of God. But put yourselves in the shoes of the people there or someone from Jesus' time reading this for the first time. We expect Mark to shine a spotlight on Jesus' power and his divinity. And he does the exact opposite in this sentence. What factual information does Mark give us about who Jesus is? One, there he's from that he's from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, first impressions are important, y'all, and this is a bad first impression. Galilee was largely an agricultural, podunk, backroad part of Israel. It was rural, it was poor, it was not important. You could call Galilee largely Nowheresville. And Nazareth was the capital of Nowheresville because it was the least exciting place you could imagine as a first century Jewish person. It was roughly 100 years old, and only had about 700 people living there. It's literally the middle of nowhere. So, not really the first info you'd expect if we're trying to introduce a powerful king, right? On top of that, Jesus' entrance isn't grand. It's actually as unpowerful as it gets. There is no aura. He does not give a speech. It's not like Braveheart. He does not rally the troops. There's no triumphant entry. In fact, when you read it in the Greek, it's almost like Jesus comes out undistinguishable from the rest of the crowds. It's strange. Let's continue in verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now it's easy to read this part and think, well, that's the big bang, right? 
There's the entrance. Everyone around him, their minds must have been blown. This is the king. In a sense, this is a powerful, powerful introduction. The language is rich with theological power. I could geek out about it for days. It's imagery of the barriers between heaven and earth being torn open, that God is now loose in our world. It reflects messianic uh, prophecy concerning the enthronement of God's king and the suffering servant. It mirrors God's spirit hovering over the waters at the moment of creation, pointing to new creation that Jesus will bring. While the whole account mirrors the Exodus story, which we've talked about here for a very long time at this church, pointing to how Jesus is gonna bring that new creation through liberation. The spirit descends like a dove, not a hawk coming gently. Imagery for that time that this spirit's gonna work through peace, peace, not conflict and speaks to Jesus just like God addressed Israel in the Old Testament, my beloved son, hinting that Jesus in some way is gonna take up Israel's story and his mission in this unexpected, peaceful way. That's all in here. But two things. First, that's not how the people there experience this moment. The grammar used in this sentence in this vision, in this address, points to it being a private moment that only Jesus experiences. We, as readers, are invited to hear it and to see it because it was passed down by him, eventually to the people who wrote this gospel. But for those present, what Mark is trying to tell us here is it was just a normal baptism, which is what everyone else in the crowd was there to do anyway. Second, even as readers, I just walked through a lot of meaning, right? Did y'all catch any of that meaning in your first read? No. The meaning of this imagery comes from knowing the rest of Jesus' story, being saturated with it. The rest of Mark's gospel is slowly going to reveal over many chapters that Jesus is the Messiah, what that means, why this baptismal moment's important, what is going on in his ministry, the stories that with study bring light to what's buried here. But you wouldn't get that at all if you cracked open Mark and just read this passage for the first time. I mean, imagine, imagine reading this for the first time. What has Jesus done so far in the story? Absolutely nothing. If this was a transactional relationship, has Jesus done anything to earn this statement from God? Yes or no? No. Yeah. He hasn't healed anyone yet. He hasn't announced the kingdom of God yet. He hasn't taught the parables. He hasn't forgiven sinners. He hasn't confronted evil. He hasn't been resurrected. And yet, what is God's first word to him? You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I look at you with great affection, delight, and pleasure. This identity is spoken over Jesus before he does anything to earn it. And I need you all to grasp that. You see, from here, Jesus is gonna live into this calling. He's going to embody all that it means over the course of the next 16 chapters of Mark. But from the beginning, belovedness is given, not earned. And before you say, well, he's Jesus, of course, that applies to him. I'm just going to stop you right there. You see, over and over in the New Testament, Paul and the other authors make it clear that through Jesus, we share in his identity 
as children of God. They even use this same word, beloved, when they talk about each other, when they talk about how we should look at each other, treat each other, think about each other, when we talk about how we should think about ourselves, the beloved of God. This sentiment is repeated over and over and over. We too are God's children brought into the divine family, which means that through Jesus, this proclamation is spoken over us too. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased before you've done anything to earn it. And y'all, I could tell you all the theology We could have done multiple sermons on all those bullet points I went through. But if you wanna know what's stuck with me, what has changed my story the most, it's this. The first word God speaks to you is that you are his beloved and with you he is well pleased. That he looks at you with love, affection, delight, pleasure, and you don't have to earn that. Sit with that. Do you every day start out with a foundational belief that before you have done anything good, bad, right, wrong, nice, ugly, that God has already called you his beloved son or daughter? Everything you do is in response to that truth, not to earn it because it's already spoken over you according to this story. Just think about our sentence today. God calls me blank. Therefore, I should blank him. Fill in the blank. God calls me beloved. Does that transform how you fill in the rest of that sentence? I don't find myself filling it with words like hate, fear, persuade, reject, Now I find myself filling it with far more beautiful words, words that have changed my life. God calls me beloved, thus I should thank him. I should love him in return. I should follow him. Or y'all, the most important for me, I should be like him. How might belovedness change the story that you seek to create and write each day in this world? How might the story of belovedness and delight change how you treat your neighbor? How might a story of belovedness and delight from God treat how you think about yourself when you make mistakes, when you do good? Do y'all think that would change a little something of how we live in this world, that story? I think it changes everything. And to write, put it this way, and I think this is profound. As we learn to put aside our own plans and submit to his, we may be granted moments of visions, glimpses of his greater reality. And at the center of that sudden sight, like we see in Jesus' baptism, we will find our loving father, affirming us as his children, equipping us too with his spirit so that our lives may be swept clean and be made ready for his use we are invited to see ourselves through God's loving gaze and in doing so, see everything and everyone else from God's loving gaze. And I think that's beautiful. So we're gonna move on in this series, but this is where I wanted to start. And next week, we're gonna explore 
how this belovedness doesn't mean that we're gonna be exempt from trials and suffering and hardship. Never forget that the road that Jesus follows from this baptism is one of suffering and sacrifice for Mark. So don't get that wrong. However, I wanna start here because for this week, I just wanna sit with this. Whatever hard road or path you're walking from out of Easter, it is one that you can move into knowing where you started, where we all start if we choose to remember the story we've been given. This foundational story that we are all invited to hold as we head into everything we experience in this reality. One about who we truly are. An identity spoken over us, not earned by us. You are God's beloved. And with you, he is well pleased. Amen? Amen. Amen.